It's my great pleasure as Master of Birkbeck to welcome you um, to this inaugural lecture by Karen Hudson-Edwards. Um, of course, despite the fact that I know everything about every member of staff in Birkbeck, um, when I get to preside at an inaugural, I get given a CV of the person um, so that I can look at them and think about what I might say and so on. Um, and Karen, interestingly, in addition to all the usual academic distinctions, which we'll come to um, in a moment, lists her hobbies. Um, and amongst her hobbies are boxing and cycling cycling, apparently. Um, so when I saw this title, um, Extreme Cycling, um, before I read the, the subtitle, I did think perhaps there was a new sport here in which people boxed while they were on cycles or something. Um, but it seems that actually we're going to have a much greater treat than that. Um, we're going to hear about the challenges of understanding global element circulation. And having perused Karen's CV, I know all about her academic distinction, all about the service that she's provided to Birkbeck over a 17-year period, being promoted um, through the ranks, publishing all the time, bringing in grant money, um, and making a distinguished contribution, and not just to research, but also, of course, to teaching, and particularly to the area of PhD students, where we often feel in the Promotions Committee that people reach the highest ranks in Birkbeck without really having done much PhD supervision. That is absolutely not the case for Karen. I think she's had eight students go through, five students um, currently, and all that has contributed to this wonderful research output that she's maintained here over so many years. Um, so I'm not going to read the title again, but I am going to invite her to deliver her inaugural lecture, and I can't resist saying extreme cycling um, again. Karen Hudson-Edwards. I just need to turn the recorder on, and then I'll go, I'll go for it. Just give me a second. Uh, first of all, oops, and the mute. So much technology these days. There we go. First of all, thank you very much, David, for that lovely uh, introduction, and thank you everyone for coming. It's um, I'm actually quite nervous, and I don't get nervous, and I think it's because it's really nice to see you all, and um, thank you very much. Um, so before I start, I really want to start by saying again, um, thank you to everyone I've worked with, my family, my friends, and my students, colleagues. Um, when you become a professor, it's, it's a lovely thing to happen, but it doesn't happen by yourself. You can't do it alone. Um, you need everyone to support you, and you need to have great people to work with. And I've learned as much from my colleagues and students as I have just reading papers. So this is really, it sounds a bit corny, but it is for everyone. Um, and I really appreciate the people I work with and all their enthusiasm as well. Because as you'll see, there's a few nutty ideas in here. And it's just nice to be able to go to people and say, I have this really wild idea. And they say, no, it's not so bad. Or that's really, really bad. <laughs> go on to something new. So thank you again. And hopefully, um, you'll like what I've got to say. And I realize I should have put a picture of a bicycle on here. I'm crazy not to. Um, yes, I'm into cycling. Yes, I'm into boxing. And it sort of links with what I'm going to talk about today. Um, so what I'm going to do um, is sort of give you an overview of some of the things my research group and I have done and give you an idea of what this thing called global element circulation is and then throw a couple wild ideas at you at the end and then that'll be that. So let's go for it. Okay, so I know a lot of you here are scientists and as a scientist this is what we do. We study the, the earth and actually we study the planets as well and we do different we study different aspects of the Earth. Um, we study earthquakes and volcanoes. Um, but we're all linked by trying to understand the planet we live on, how it works, 
um, how the rocks influence life, how they influence the climate, and that's what we're really all linked by. But as a, a geochemist, um, I'm particularly interested in how the Earth in, is developed and shaped by elements. And so here's something everyone in first year has seen. It's a periodic table. And this is the foundation of the research that we do, or that my group and I do at Birkbeck. So we're interested in all the elements. People say, what element are you interested in? Well, all of them, really. To understand the processes of global element circulation, we need to have an understanding of the properties of the elements, how they form minerals, how they then form rocks, and how those are shaped and how they develop on the Earth's surface. Okay, so the overarching sort of link with everything I've done at Birkbeck and beyond is trying to look at how elements are cycled around the Earth. And one of the things that we as geochemists do is we've developed these funny little models called geochemical cycles. And I put this one out. This isn't one that I specifically work on, but it's, it's the carbon cycle, and it's one that most people have heard of. And so what you see here is a little cartoon showing you the atmosphere, showing you the lithosphere and the hydrosphere. And it's got a big circle on it to tell you that elements cycle from these different, basically, compartments on the Earth. So they, some of the CO2 that we all hear about these days is in the atmosphere. That then rains on the surface of the Earth as carbonic acid, and it's converted to, to limestones. And sometimes those limestones are found in fossils. And then sometimes that's buried quite deep and might turn into methane or other things. And then we might burn it as our coal, and that goes back into the atmosphere as CO2. So this is a, a cycle. And what you're seeing here, the numbers that you're seeing, are, are there's two types of numbers. The black numbers are carbon that's stored in these different, what we call reservoirs or compartments. So the carbon stored in soils, the carbon stored in the atmosphere. <coughs> And then the, the blue numbers are what we call the fluxes, so the amount of movement of carbon between different parts of these cycles. Um, so that's really what the remainder of what I'm going to tell you is talking about cycles and some of the different cycles I've worked on and what we're trying to understand about them. So there's the carbon cycle again, and these are the five things that my group and I have looked at for the past 17 years. We want to know the forms of these elements. How do they occur on Earth? How does carbon occur? We know it's in CO2. We know it's in carbonate rocks. And how do other elements occur at the Earth's surface? Second thing is we want to know how they transform. CO2 doesn't always stay as CO2. Sometimes it'll change into carbonate. We want to know how that happens, and we want to know why it happens. Is it because we're precipitating minerals? Is it because bacteria are causing minerals to precipitate? What, what's the mechanism behind that? We also want to know the sources of these elements and where they end up, the sinks. We want to know how they're stored and how long they're stored. And then finally, we want to know this idea about flux. How much is moved and over what time scale is it moved? And the reason we want to know these things uh, is lots of reasons, actually. Um, we all heard about global warming, for example. So we want to know, for example, how does carbon dioxide get into the atmosphere? How long is it going to stay up there? And then how can we maybe put it into other reservoirs where it might not be affecting our global climate? And as I go through, I'm going to tell you some other um, things about other elements and their sources and sinks and so on. So that's just the example to set the scene. And now I'm going to split that periodic table into two types of elements. 
The first are nutrients. So nutrients we all know about. We've got vitamin C, we take B12, we might take vitamin D in the winter to give us a bit of a boost. And we put nutrients on our plants if we're gardeners and in other things. So nutrients are substances that provide nourishment essential for the maintenance of life and for growth. And on that periodic table you saw, a lot of elements are actually nutrients. Some of them are micronutrients, some of them are macronutrients. And so we're also interested in how nutrients cycle around the globe as well. And so I'm going to tell you a story about a project I was really lucky to get involved in. And this is a really nice thing about being an academic. You sort of have your main pathway, and then a colleague might come along and say, hey, I've got this to work on. What do you think? So my colleague, Charlie Bristow, who's one of the dusty fellows over on the left, um, had a chance to go to Chad in 2005, which he did. And he was lucky enough to get into a dust storm. And lucky, I say, because he managed to collect a lot of samples of dust. And the dust in Chad is really important, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But you can see that the little red, I haven't got a pointer, sorry. The little red blob in those maps is the dust coming from Chad. And you can get the feel that it goes all around the earth. And that's actually quite important. So Charlie went out and did quite a lot of work on the sedimentology of the, the sediments that provided the dust. And then he said, well, you're a geochemist. Why don't you have a look at the geochemistry and mineralogy of the dust? So why not? And it's actually turned into a really interesting story. So Charlie, um, with other colleagues, mapped out the geology of this place called the Bedelli Depression. And it's this major dust source in Chad. And this is the map. And the, the thing that's most important to show you is the, where the red arrow is pointing to this purple spot. And that's a rock called diatomite. So a lot of you are geologists, you know that diatomite is made up of diatoms, which are these little guys here. Ooh. And they're made mostly of, of silica. Um, but other elements as well. And the diatomite is basically the remains of a big lake called um, Paleo Lake Chad, which is massive, covered a lot of this area, but has dried up over the last 10,000 years. Now, the diatomite's important because it's, it's, if you pick it up, you wouldn't think it's a rock. It's really, really light, and that's because it's made of most of these hollow fossils. But that diatomite gets blown to pieces by the yellow dune sand, which is quartz, and the dune sand pounds on the diatomite and then sends it into dust. So the action of those two things produces this really important dust. So there's a sort of generic map showing you where Chad is, right in the middle of Africa. And there's the Bedelli Depression up in the middle, which was part of Lake Chad. And Lake Chad still exists, but it's only a little bit now. And the reason that this dust is so important is it follows that arrow that you see in the lower picture. It goes across the African Sahara, across the equatorial Atlantic, and it dumps in the Amazon. And we all know how important the Amazon is. It's important for global biodiversity. It's important for storing carbon and, and lots of other issues. So this dust is, is a source of material for the equatorial Atlantic and the Amazon. And that's why it's so important. And not only that, it's one of the few spots in the world where dust blows all year long. Dust can be very seasonal, but dust from the Bedelli just keeps on blowing. You can't stop it. Not yet, anyway. So when I came in, we thought, OK, let's have a look at the dust. And we thought, let's have a look at the dust from the point of view of nutrients, because we knew it fed the equatorial Atlantic and the Amazon. So we know that iron and phosphorus are two elements which are really important as micronutrients. They provide oceanic phytoplankton with material to grow on. 
and they, they feed the Amazon. We know that the Amazon soils in the Amazon are very poor. They're, they're very leached, and they don't actually contain a lot of nutrients. So this dust provides nutrients for the soils in the Amazon and in the equatorial Atlantic. So Charlie and I, um, together with some other colleagues, got together and we worked out the fluxes of this, these materials going across to, to the Amazon. And those numbers might not seem like much, but actually that iron number there that you see for the North Atlantic, that's about 60% of the iron supplied to the North Atlantic. So it's a significant amount just coming from that one source. So that was the sort of first thing we did, kind of a bulk analysis. And then um, I sort of got interested in the phosphorus, specifically for the Amazon, because we know, again, phosphorus is very, very limited in the Amazon. And so this phosphorus is feeding the trees in the Amazon, and we wanted to know what it was. So as um, a geochemist, I'm also a mineralogist, so I have two hats. And I study mineralogy because we know that elements in geologic materials are stored in minerals. And I'm what I call an environmental mineralogist. So that means that I study minerals, but I use techniques that are not necessarily those that you might learn as an undergraduate. So as an undergraduate, you walk in and you get a beautiful piece of granite. It's got lovely big crystals, and you can say, oh, that's a feldspar or something. With environmental minerals, they're kind of small. They're kind of really hard to see. They're not very crystalline, and they're kind of hard to determine what they are. So we use a lot of different techniques to study these minerals. And we kind of put them all together like a jigsaw puzzle, or like Sherlock Holmes trying to figure out a puzzle, a mystery. And then we say something about how, in this case, the phosphorus occurs in these materials. So the, the little colored one that you see on the left is what, it's what we call a chemical map that we do on a microprobe that's here in Birkbeck. And I'm just going to go over. If this is working, it is, okay. Um, so this is a map of calcium, phosphorus, and oxygen. And it's a fragment from the Bedelli dusts. And so the fact that we've got bright calcium, phosphorus, and, and actually oxygen is brighter than it looks, means that we have some calcium phosphate in the dusts. And then the second map shows iron, oxygen, and phosphorus, but no calcium, which means that we have some iron with phosphorus. So there are two main forms of phosphorus in these dusts. Uh, this funny-looking bar graph is a different technique called chemical extraction. So we get into the lab and we put the dust in different chemicals. And by knowing which um, part of the phosphorus we're extracting, we can say that that phosphorus is associated with iron or it's associated with um, calcium and so on. And then the technique on the right here is a really fancy technique for which we have to go to a thing called a synchrotron near Oxford or near Didcot. And we, we go down and we look at the atomic scale. So we look at the bonding between phosphorus and other things. And we, we look at the bonding in our materials. So here's the dust and the sediments. And then we compare it to standards like a fish, like apatite, or like goethite. And then it's really simply a matter of matching up the traces we get with our standards and working out which kind of phosphorus we have. So the answer to the, to the mystery of phosphorus in Chad and the Bedelli is that we do actually have a lot of iron oxide with some phosphorus on it. That's pretty common. But we also have a lot of um, calcium phosphate. And so we looked a little bit further to find out how that calcium phosphate occurred. And interestingly, the calcium phosphate, 10 to 50% of that phosphorus is actually from fish bone, from the dust. And so 
we thought, why did that happen? So we went back to Charlie's field photographs and we had a look and sure enough, there are fossil fish in the Bedelli diatomite. And that makes sense. The, the Lake Chad was a lake and there were lots of fish in it and their fish bones were preserved in the diatomite. And now that this is being blasted into dust, these fish bones are crossing the Atlantic and being dumped on the Amazon. So this fish is going all on a journey. And that was pretty important for us. No one had really found fish, fish bone in dust before. And the fact that it's falling on the Amazon is really significant because fish bone phosphorus we actually use in our gardens. It's really soluble. It dissolves much more easily than other forms of phosphorus. So that 10 to 55% that's falling on the Amazon is fairly soluble and we think maybe is keeping the Amazon hopefully replenished. But there's a bit of a downside to this story. It's great, we know this phosphorus is there, it's supplying the Amazon, but we know that that source material has a finite thickness. It's a lake, sure enough, but it only has a finite thickness of the diatomite. So someday that's gonna go away, it's gonna be used up. We don't know how long that's gonna be. It could be 10,000 years, it could be 20,000 years and longer. But at some point, this source of phosphorus, this soluble phosphorus is gonna stop. So this is where scientists then say, well, we need more money to go back and carry on a research, and hopefully that's what we're going to do, find out what's going to happen to the phosphorus in Chad. So that's kind of a global cycle for phosphorus going from Africa to the Amazon and, and having a global impact, actually, on the Amazon rainforest. Okay, so that's nutrients. Now we're going to go on to the other fun things, which are toxins. So toxins that we know are substances, poisonous substances. And really, if you look at any element, any element can be poisonous if we eat too much of it or take in too much of it. Um, but some elements are much more toxic than others. Things like arsenic, you really don't need any arsenic at all, it's toxic. Um, cyanide, all the ones I've shown here are fairly toxic. So I spend a lot of my time with my group looking at toxins and how they cycle around the globe as well. And we look at environmental toxins. Um, we look at toxins from urban waste. Uh, there are natural toxins as well. These are volcanic ash, which actually can be a natural toxin. It's, it's full of silica, which is quite reactive in the lung. But my group and I spend a lot of time looking at mine waste. So you're going to hear quite a lot about mine waste. This is a mine in Cyprus, um, and it's been abandoned now, so there's a lot of mine waste left over. And that's an operating, I'm not going to say where it is, it's somewhere in the world. But you can see the smelter in the background is actually letting a fair bit of lead out and this couple is having a nice wedding. So they're very happy. Luckily, it's mostly blowing the other way, thankfully. So we study these toxins. We try to do a lot of things with them that I'll tell you about in a minute. Okay, so I've hinted at this a little bit, but again, as an environmental mineralogist and geochemist, which is quite a mouthful, um, we use a lot of techniques to try and understand how the speciation or the form of contaminants. And it's quite fun because you learn a lot of different things and by every little technique gives you a little bit more information. So we work on the computer, we make simulations of minerals and we model those. We do chemical extractions. We do x-ray mapping on the microprobe. We use the scanning electron microscope, the SEM and we analyze water samples and we do modeling of those. A whole range of techniques and we put it all together. So the first thing we do when we start most of these studies is we try and understand the form of, of these toxins, so the speciation of toxins. And so this is an, oh, I'll just pull 
happened. Yeah? This is an example of a project a PhD student of mine did in Manchester. So the little road that you see there is Oxford Road in Manchester, which links the University of Manchester with Manchester Metropolitan University, I have to think about that. And unfortunately, it's one of the most polluted roads in Manchester, where the university is. Um, and we were interested to look at road dust. So it's unfortunately for the student, not the most glamorous project in the world. But that's what she did. She collected that material by the side of the road, got a brush, swept it into a dustpan, not very glamorous, and then took it to the lab and tried to understand the toxins in road dust. Because we know that you can inhale road dust you know, occasionally, and it can enter water systems. So she looked at how lead and some other metals occurred. What, what was the form of these things in the road dust? And so again, we used a lot of techniques. We went to the synchrotron, and that's why we produced those funny wiggly patterns over there. And her conclusion was lead occurs in many forms. Lead oxide, lead chromate, lead chloride, lead carbonate, all sorts of forms. And by knowing those forms, you can then make some judgments by reading a lot of the literature about the medical literature to say how those forms might affect humans. So the first one says lead chromate could cause lung inflammation. And that's because lead chromate actually is really insoluble. And if you get a bit of lead chromate in your lung, a little bit's going to be fine. But if you take in too much, it's insoluble, so it's going to stay in your lung for a long time. Um, the lead oxide is quite soluble. So if you get it in your stomach, it dissolves quite readily, and you might get some lead in your system. So the study really stopped there. Um, it was mainly to characterize the forms of these elements. And I'm not saying this to scare you. There's not that much lead in this road dust at all. But it, it was the first study that really looked at the forms in these materials and tried to say something about them. Um, this is another example of how we characterize materials. And this is an example of going over to Canada now, up to northern Canada and Yellowknife, where they've been mining gold, or they were mining gold, rather, for about 100 years. And they extracted the gold from a mineral called arsenopyrite. And by doing this, they produced um, what you see here at the bottom, AS203, sorry, yeah, AS203, which is arsenic in the form of arsenic 3 plus, or arsenite. And that is the most toxic form of arsenite. And that's what Yellowknife looks like. It's above the tree line. It's rather spectacular. Um, but to, to sort of preserve the environment, they stored the waste underground in the old gold mine workings. So I was lucky to work with some colleagues from Canada and some um, colleagues from UCL, and Joanne, who's sitting there looking embarrassed, um, and her PhD student, Tom Osborne, and to characterize the minerals and the bacteria that occurred. Because that stuff over there that you see on the left um, is a biofilm or a slime that occurs on the walls of the mine underground. Um, it has a loose name of snotite, if you like that one, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, but it's full of minerals, and it's actually full of bacteria. And the good news is, the mineral that is being pointed to in red is called euconite, and it contains arsenic in the form of arsenic 5 plus. So that means that the arsenic 3 plus somehow has been converted to arsenic 5 plus. And Joanne and her group were able to show that it's a bacterium that they were able to isolate named GM1, giant mine 1, after the mine. And that's, a, that's the organism that does the conversion. And it was quite interesting because that was the first time bacteria of this type was found that grew at low temperatures. So it's possible someday that might be able to be used for bioremediation. So the bacteria convert the arsenic to arsenic-5, and then the arsenic-5 is taken up in a mineral and is insoluble. 
So it's, it's all happening underground. So that's a good example of combining mineralogy now with microbiology. And this is what we're doing, trying to grow out into other disciplines as well. Oops, get that all up there. Um, the other thing, so we characterize, that's our number one thing. The second thing that we do is we try to understand then once knowing what the minerals are, we understand how they change because obviously we can form a mineral, but it might change when it's in the natural environment. So to understand how it changes, we do both lab studies and we do field studies. So this is some work by a former PhD student of mine called Adrian Smith, who got in the lab and made lots of these jarosite minerals that contained lead and arsenic. And then he dissolved them in different um, solutions to see how they behaved. And so Adrian was able to produce a reaction like this to show that that mineral on the left dissolved, produced this sort of frosty coating that you see here, and also released some arsenic, ASO4, into solution. And these are really useful experiments. They're ideal experiments, but they're a guideline as to what might happen in the real world. And so we do both in tandem. And then this is an example of some work we can do. You can even take it further and not even get into the lab if you don't want to get your hands dirty. You can make a mineral in the computer, and then you can play around with that computer mineral. In this case, what we did is we put copper and zinc and cadmium into the mineral surface, and then we see how the mineral behaves by doing some computer calculations. So it's a whole range of things from the atomic scale that you see here up to the big field scale, and then trying to put it all together, which is a fun bit. Okay, so then we go into the field and we do real case studies to understand what the minerals are and how they transform, and then how some of these elements are cycled as these transformations occur. So this is a study I did with colleagues actually when I first started at Birkbeck. It was my very first grant that I got, um, and we got some funding to go and study a big tailings dam spill down in southern Spain. So this is the Rio Guadiamar, uh, just west of Sevilla in Spain, and in 1998 there was a big dam spilled. The dam broke and this big pile of grey tailings that you can see there spilled out all down the river system. Um, luckily it happened at night so no one was killed but it really destroyed the river system. There were a lot of beautiful haciendas and lovely villas and things and that was, that was gone. So it blanketed it with this cover of acid water and, and tailings. And luckily um, the governments and the mining company got in there very quickly and they, they built some walls just here to stop the flow of water because south of that area is a place called Danyana National Park, which is a major migratory stopping off point for birds coming from northern Europe to southern to, to Africa. And they were able to mostly stop the water coming down. And then they got a bunch of dump trucks and some shovels and they got out and dug up all the tailings and then drove them back and dumped them in the open pit. So it was a really good cleanup effort. And we were able to go back after that cleanup. You can see how bare it is, quite stripped bare. And we studied how the river morphology had changed, but also had a look at whether the chemistry had changed a lot. And so one of the things we did was look at arsenic, because we realized arsenic was potentially a problem in this area. So we studied little pools like this to see if there was any arsenic left, and if so, what would happen to that arsenic if those pools dried out. And so I won't go through it in detail. There's another map to show you the AS is arsenic. We went to the synchrotron again, and we did some modeling of the water chemistry that we found. And we found out that, unfortunately, there still was a bit of tailings left. So there's some tailings. They'd got most of the tailings through the cleanup. But even that little bit they left behind was really, really reactive. It dissolved very quickly. 
And so the arsenic had been released into the water, but then luckily as the pools evaporated, which is what you see here, that, that arsenic was then taken up into secondary minerals, um, iron oxides and iron sulfates, that then held it quite tightly. So as long as then that floodplain wouldn't be disturbed, that arsenic was probably fairly insoluble. So although there was a short-term cycling, the long-term effect by storing the arsenic in minerals was probably a good thing. Okay, so now let's travel to Bolivia across the ocean and just give, to give you a flavor of another field study with some different elements. This is uh, up in the Andes in Bolivia. The mountain that you see there is the Cerro Rico mountain and it's about 4,600 meters above sea level, so it gives you, makes you a little dizzy doing fieldwork up there, but it's a fascinating place. And it's been mined ever since the Spanish invasion in 1540, because the Spanish realized how rich it was in silver, and basically that was the place that funded a lot of the Spanish, um, they call it civilization and gold rush and so on afterwards. Um, so the mountain is now kind of like a honeycomb. It's, it's littered with old shafts and it's been mined ever since. Um, but unfortunately, at the time, and a little bit today, the, the conventional wisdom was, well, a river's there, if I dump all my waste in the river, it'll just be taken downstream and I won't have to worry about it anymore. So the river floodplain, even, so there's, there's, here's where we are in Potosi, even 200 kilometers downstream, just about halfway down that river, the river is contaminated because there's so much tailing that has gone into the river um, and it's built up over time. So you can see it here. That's just full of sediment, largely from tailings, but also from weathering of the, the Andes. And the river runs gray in the dry season, and that's because it's full of tailings. And then the tailings, when they oxidize in the floodplain, turn pink. So it's actually quite pretty, but it's really contaminated. So we've worked in, in the Pilcomile for many years on different aspects. Um, and one of the things of concern was that some of the riverside communities along the Pilcomile grow vegetables. And so we were interested to see how the tailings behaved and whether their weather, the breakdown of the tailings could maybe cause any problems with the crops. Okay, so that's just showing that again, sorry, that shouldn't be there. Okay, so David, who's sitting near the back row, um, was game enough to go for a PhD where he studied the tailings weathering um, in, in a lab situation. So we got some tailings from Bolivia and also some soil because we know that the tailings reacts with the floodplain soil. So David, who you see there in the picture, sorry you're a bit stretched out there I think, um, built some columns and filled some of them with just tailings, some of them with soil mixed with tailings, and then some of them with soil with a layer of tailings on top to simulate if it was a tailings dam spill. And then spent three years um, alternating raining, raining on the tailings, pouring water on the tailings, and stopping doing that to simulate wet and dry season conditions that we get in Bolivia. And had some wonderful results. So here's just a flavor of those. What happened is, um, over time, so this is sort of time zero, and this is the end, over time the pH of the solutions dropped to very, very acidic conditions. <coughs> And that's because the tailings are full of pyrite, and that weathers really quickly and generates acid solutions. Um, and we saw a lot of fluctuation in the amounts of things like zinc, cadmium, sulfur that were leached from the tailings. Um, and then we, at the end of this whole thing, we broke it open and David analyzed the tailings afterwards, trying to figure out what had happened in between. 
And one of, two of the really interesting elements were actually cadmium and zinc. And if, you, if I put up the periodic table again, you'd see that cadmium and zinc lie in the same column of the periodic table. And that means normally they behave the same way. And that's true to some extent, but actually people have assumed that cadmium and zinc always behave the same. But in fact, if you look at David's uh, results, you can see that if they behave the same, the zinc to cadmium ratio should be flat across the, the time series. But it isn't, it wobbles. And in the soil column, it zooms up in the middle and then it goes down again. So something's happening with cadmium and zinc that's causing this. So the first thing David looked at was just to look at a mineral called a zinc sulfide mineral to see if that was the cause. Because we know in zinc sulfide, some cadmium can go into zinc sulfide. So that was the first thing to check. And sure enough, um, produced this beautiful x-ray map um, to show that in fact there were two forms of zinc sulfide. One is called wurtzite and one is called sphalerite. The wurtzite contains cadmium. So here's some cadmium here in the whole of the zinc sulfide grain and that's the wurtzite part. And then within that grain we also have sphalerite. So that sphalerite contains iron but no cadmium. So in fact, you have two types of zinc sulfide with different cadmium concentrations. And that's quite important because we know wurtzite's a high temperature phase when it forms at first, and sphalerite's lower temperature. But then if you take them from where they form deep in the earth up to the top, the wurtzite is less stable and it will weather, it'll break down more quickly. Okay, so if we just ignore this bit for now, Part of the, the reason these ratios change is because we have these different types of zinc sulfide. So first the wurtzite weathers and it releases lots of cadmium. Then the iron sphalerite weathers with no cadmium. And then another type of sphalerite with no iron weathers. So that's one of the explanations, which is fantastic. And we might be able to stop there, except then we have to realize that like all earth system science, it's never that simple. And in fact, we have a lot of things going on at the same time. So we have also secondary minerals, iron minerals, that first form, take up some of the zinc, and then later on as the pH gets low, it's all released again. We have these soluble minerals, sort of crusts form um, during the dry seasons, and then they dissolve in the wet seasons. So that's going on as well. And then in the soil columns, which is why we have that big um, peak in the soil, we also have organic acids, and they too can take up and dissolve cadmium or release cadmium. And so that's why the soils are very, very different. So it's a really nice study to show that you need to understand the mineral mineralogy, but you need to try and think about everything all at once and how complicated these systems are. But coming back to the, the big punchline, um, for the farmers in the areas, the bad news is that cadmium leaches really quickly. And in fact, over the course of the experiments in the soil columns, in fact, almost all of them, in the soil columns, almost 100% of the cadmium was released. And obviously, that's not great. Cadmium can be taken up into plants quite readily, and it's very, very toxic to plants. And so the recommendation, which actually is fairly obvious, is you really shouldn't let any tailings get onto floodplains, especially tailings like this that generate acid. Um, even a little bit of tailings can set off a major chain, chain reaction. And so, um, anytime we get tailings down spills and tailings get onto floodplains, the best thing is to get them off as quickly as we can. 
How am I doing? OK, so we'll quickly run through this. So you've heard a bit about mine waste as well. Um, this is now leading up to the wacky idea at the end. So why on earth do I spend my time with my group convincing them they should work on mine waste? Well, we know that mine waste generates huge, huge volumes of waste. It occurs as solids like you see here, and it occurs as liquids. Uh, it's a global issue. So most countries have had some sort of mining. That's a uh, gold mine at Kalgoorlie in WA. You can see that the, mine, the waste imprint here on the right is bigger than the town itself. So it's massive. Um, we've already seen the Rio Pilcomayo in Bolivia, and that's some old massive sulfide in Cyprus. Everywhere has mine waste. Here in the UK, we've got mine waste. We know there are types, and so we've got liquid mine waste. The most common is acid mine drainage, AMD, which is acidic and probably the most problematic. But we also have neutral pH mine waste. This is an example in Wales. And we also have mine waste waters that are quite basic, quite alkaline as well. Lots of different types. And we have lots of different types of solids as well. You've heard me talk about tailings. That's a big repository in northern Ontario in Canada, about 100 million tons. We've got metallurgical waste, and we've got waste rock in southern Spain. Um, the big issue with mine waste is, although we're producing mine waste today, in most, a lot of countries, legislation is caught up. And it's, there's a lot more legislation around preventing mine waste, or at least containing it, and making sure it doesn't contaminate the environment around. The issue comes with the past, often, when the regulation wasn't as good. So in Bolivia, a lot of the waste that we see in the Pilcomayo is from the 1540s up to, to recent. And in the UK, we've got a lot of mine waste left over from ancient mining, lead mining, and, and so on. So this is up in Swaledale, where, in fact, the mining landscape is now preserved because it's an archaeological setting. So we, have to, we can't do anything with that, unfortunately. Um, and there's lots of estimates about um, now trying to understand mine waste. And someone has said that the amount of material moved by mining is actually bigger than that moved by sedimentary processes. So it's, it's massive. We're, do, we're causing massive change. Um, and in terms of cost, acid mine drainage is one of the things mostly worldwide that needs to be remediated. So there's a huge liability cost in cleaning up acid mine drainage because it's the most devastating type of mine waste. So my wacky idea is um, to try now to put together, and this has sort of come from all my years at Birkbeck and working with everyone, um, to try and put this all together, to try and build a model, global model, for mine waste. How is mine waste really impacted on the earth? So you know, how is it, both in terms of the actual sediment and the water, but also the elements contained in mine waste? We know that mine waste can contain zinc, cadmium, arsenic, antimony. How has movement of those elements from mining impacted on the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the biosphere, and river systems? And now, where's it all going to go? Is it going to end up in the oceans? Is it just going to cycle around? Can we actually put together a global model of mine waste? So we have started. So I've been fortunate to have uh, Soren Balaban from Romania working with me. Um, he's uh, been trying to sort of map mine waste, just to get some methods going to try and map mine waste. So we're in a, working at a really fortunate time at the moment because there's a lot of free data available on the internet, and it just takes someone to know how to use it. And fortunately, Soren's great at that. So he's gone into um, Google Earth and the Landsat data that you can get, and he's gone back to the Pilcomayo in Bolivia, and he's mapped out the mine waste down the river in the Pilcomayo. 
So he's done that using some of the data that we have, but also looking at um, the Google Earth images and mapping out the contaminated sediment. So this is a plan view, and you can see the, the orange line is the slope. So we're starting in the high Andes and ending up almost at sea level. The, the red is basically all the sediment in the river valley, and the blue is the sediment that we believe has been remobilized by mining. So you can see, obviously, there's still a lot of natural sediment getting into the system, but there's also a lot of mining sediment. And not much is stored in the upper part, and that's because the valleys are very steep. But once you get into the lowlands, it all flattens out, and we get a lot of sediment deposition. And on a plan view map, you can see that as well. So basically, the red and the blue, we've had to split it into three because it's such a big river. So the, the upper part is in the upper frame, and then it goes into this one, and then this one. So the red and the blue are the contaminated sediment, but the red is where there are agricultural communities. So they're kind of the hot spots of concern. And you can see that around Sotomayor and Puente Sucre up there, um, it's red and it's a bit thick. And that's actually bad news because that's where most of the agriculture takes place. And that's quite highly contaminated. Um, and so we've been able to work out an area. We don't, can't get a volume because we don't know the, the real thickness. But we have an area of contaminated sediment throughout the Pilcomayo. So it's a first step to actually mapping out the amount of, of sediment. And this method could be used in any river system. The data are there. And then, uh, to look at the, the water side, Rebecca, my niece who's been working with me, um, has been trying to put together a database for acid mine drainage. So again, using the data that are already out there and putting them together to try and get a global view. So this is um, the global zinc fluxes um, that Rebecca's been able to find so far um, across the world. And it really points out several things. First of all, there are no data for this bit. None at all. Now that's partly because Rebecca's only started, and partly because the data are really either hard to find or they don't exist, I think. Um, there's nothing for Africa and not much for the other countries that you see there. It may be there. We just need to find it, or it may not be there. So that's one of the big problems. The other interesting thing is that these big blobs are in Europe. <laughs> uh, this is the Rio Tinto in Spain. It's a really famous river. Um, it's the Red River. And it's acid pH about one or two for about 80 kilometers. And it just exports zinc into the Mediterranean. That's a really big dot that you see here. And that really highlights, those big dots relate largely to abandoned historic mines and highlights the problem that maybe it's not mining today, it's mining from the past that we need to look at. Um, and it's a first step at sort of saying, wow, you know, a lot of zinc is actually coming from mining into the, into the world's oceans. So that, this is uh, a... That's where we're going. So just to sum up, um, to sort of say, I think that global cycles are really important. And as geologists, we have a great role to play, putting everything together and understanding these things. But there's some challenges. Uh, for the forms of the elements, we need techniques. We, there's, although we know a lot about minerals, we need a lot more information. There's still a lot of minerals we don't understand, especially these grungy environmental minerals that are not easy to study. Um, for the transformations, we, we still need a lot of fundamental work to understand how one mineral transforms into another. And I, I suppose the revelation for old geologists like me is um, that trying to integrate with the biological world, because often it's not just our rock reactions, it's reactions with um, bacteria, it's fungi, and, and that sort of thing. So by working with other people, we learn a lot about that. 
Sorsen thinks getting those global data is a real priority and having enough time and big databases to put it together, mapping the accumulation zones, and then for the fluxes, getting out into the field still. It's really important. We can do a lot with computers, but we need basic field studies and work to collect those raw data that are really representative of our natural uh, environment. And these global cycles tell us a lot about the impacts of these uh, processes and elements on climate, humans, all sorts of things that we're concerned about in our, in our globe today. So thank you very much, and again, thank you for coming and for all your support. It's been fun. Professor Gerald Roberts, I'm the Head of Department in Earth and Planetary Sciences here at Birkbeck. It's uh, wonderful to hear this lecture from Karen. Um, she's a fantastic colleague to have in the department, someone that um, can be just trusted to do things in new and in innovative ways. Um, I'm really uh, just shocked to see how much um, damage we're doing to our, our environment. Um, but I'm very pleased to see that a global view is being taken of the problem by Karen. I think that's very innovative to look at it globally. And because usually environmental mineralogy and environmental geochemistry is focused on local issues. So I'm really impressed with this global view that Karen has taken. So um, it's customary on these occasions not to take questions from the audience but I can invite you to a drinks reception that we're going to have, where I'm sure you can ask Karen there. So um, I'd just like to propose a final vote of thanks for a really wonderful evening. And it's great to have a new professor, Karen Hudson-Edwards, in our department. So thanks. Thank